Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com. A look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. Last week, I wrote a tribute to Gary Smith, who just retired from Sports Illustrated last month. I consider him the greatest sports writer of this era and really a beacon for any journalist who also values the art of storytelling. My guest for this episode is a current writer for SI, a former coworker and longtime friend of Smith, who has done some pretty terrific long-form sports writing in his own right. Thomas Lake, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, Tom is joining us from his back porch. You can hear the birds chirping in the background, which I think will create a nice little, nice little calm mood to our podcast today. How are you doing? Oh, uh, very well, thank you. Just uh, just got back from Iowa, uh, where I was writing a story about uh, minor league baseball. Uh, the Burlington Bees, single A in Iowa, were ahead seventeen to one. Uh, and then they gave up 19 straight runs and lost the game. It was Ugh. quite a calamity. Will that be? Uh, will that be in this week's issue? Correct. I just uh, finished writing it, and they, they closed it up last night. All right. Well, let's. Uh, before we get into your work, let's talk about Gary Smith. And obviously, you you have a pretty special relationship with him, which we'll get into in a bit. But I want to start with how you discovered him. You're a you're a great journalist. You do a lot of long form work. I imagine that as far as influences go, he would be the number one person. How did you discover Gary Smith and what drew you to him? Yeah, uh, well, I read from I read Sports Illustrated as a kid. My grandfather got a subscription for me and my brother. And, and um, I don't think, uh, I think as a kid, I, I fully appreciated uh, the magic of what he was doing. It really wasn't until uh, I was probably uh, 23 or 24 working in newspapers, uh, uh, that I rediscovered his work. Um, I was writing for the Florida times union newspaper in Jacksonville and, um, uh, a guy named Tommy Tomlinson, a, a columnist for the Charlotte observer came down to give uh, a talk there just about narrative journalism. And he mentioned Gary's work and, and said, Hey, look, there's this anthology of Gary's work called beyond the game. You should buy it and read it. And, uh, I did, and was sort of uh, re-amazed by what I found in there. I had read a couple of his stories previously, like in the best American sports writing, uh, but going through and reading them one by one by one was just uh, uh, a real revelation. Um, and the way he makes it seem like uh, a, a novel or something, only, only it's all true. And that's the thing. I think it's easy for uh, non-journalists uh, to sort of uh, not realize about Gary is that uh, it's it's really the reporting that uh, sets him up to be able to write those amazing sentences. I mean, the, the standard legend about Gary is that he's interviewing at least 50 people for each story that he yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I mentioned that in my piece last week. I remember reading that about Gary in one of those Best American Sports Writing anthologies. Rick Riley was the guest editor, and he wrote uh, kind of a 10-point advice column for, journalism, for journalists, and one of them was about doing your research and doing your reporting, and he mentioned the Gary Smith rule of 50 people. And I, at the time, 
thought that was such a, a novel concept, especially because traditionally most journalists don't get the time in a story to interview 50 people. But for someone to have that and to make uh, such great use of it was such a novel thing for me. And, and, and I thought of that early as, uh, you know, before I even got into the field, reading his work and just sensing how much he had become an expert on his material before he ever sat down and wrote a word about it. That's true. And, and it's, you sort of, you earn that authority from, from each additional interview. And, and the other thing he does that, uh, that he sort of taught me and I still probably need to be better at it is, um, so let's say if you were going to try to do what he does and you go and you interview this person and that person and that person, um, it's not just a sort of checklist to cross off. I mean, He'll talk to a, uh, a person for hours and then realize later as he's writing that there were like 10 other things he should have asked or should have gotten the person to describe just a little better or a little more vividly. And so then he'll call the person back one, two, three, four, five times. Hmm. And I have a lot of trouble with that because I'm so afraid of being annoying to somebody. <laughs> uh, but he just has this belief that uh, – that they'll be okay with it and that they will want a great story just like he does. And I think usually it works out. Yeah. How did you get to know Gary Smith? Well, uh, six years ago, um, I was in newspapers still. I was writing for the St. Petersburg times, now the Tampa Bay times down in Florida. And, uh, I'd been in newspapers seven years and wanted to try to break into magazines. So, uh, given that, I'd grown up reading Sports Illustrated. I thought, well, maybe I'll try there. I put together a package of my best stories, um, sent it by FedEx up to New York, uh, waited to see what would happen. Um, well, nothing did. Uh, <laughs> I guess they probably get those all the time. Uh, meanwhile, I thought, uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to write an email to Gary Smith. Well, I didn't have his email address, but... Uh, I went to a place on the website where you can fill out a form and press submit. And um, theoretically, the note will get to the person, although I always imagine it probably just goes into a slush pile somewhere. Um, incredibly, this fan letter did get to Gary. And even more incredibly to me, uh, he wrote back a few days later, a very nice little note. And uh, we went back and forth. Um, I sent him a link to a story I had done. Uh, hoping that he would read it. And I imagine he gets hundreds or thousands of these, or at least used to. Um, but he took the time to read it. It was a story about a small town in the Florida panhandle called Vernon, where decades ago, people had, like dozens of people had gotten this strange idea to commit insurance fraud by buying personal injury insurance policies, shooting off a hand or a foot, and then mm. collecting a hundred thousand dollars or more, oh, and geez. so what? It, so what happened in this very small town is you had all these people walking around missing a hand or a foot. Very strange. Uh, but I went and wrote the story about that town. Uh, Gary read it, liked it, and um, got on the phone to the boss in New York and said, um, "Hey, could you give this kid a chance?" So that's how I got my first freelance assignment with SI. Wow. And I would imagine that as you kept writing, you kept reaching out to him and, and wanting his take, his advice? 
Well, certainly with my first story uh, for SI, uh, it was about um, a high school basketball game in Alabama where one team kept having guys foul out of the game. They started out with only eight in the game. They'd had some guys quit or something, and the refs were calling a lot of fouls that night. So they had eight on the team, you know, five on the floor, three on the bench, then seven, six, five, kept fouling out. Four, three, two. So they had only two guys on the floor against five, and those two guys came back and won the game. It was a pretty amazing story. Uh, well, I tried to do something pretty ambitious in writing it and kind of flashing back to these two boys' pasts and then forward to their future 16 years later, uh, which is when I started writing the story, 16 years after the game had happened. Um, but I really didn't quite have the skill to pull it off, to do it right. And, um, in desperation, I called Gary and asked for some help and he gave me, um, a lot. I mean, I think he must've spent a total of six hours on the phone with me, helping me to fix that story. And, and so, uh, at one point though, he did say, uh, this is a one-time thing. Uh, so it was sort of like, he'll, here we go. Uh, I helped you. Now you're on your own. And that right. story, uh, it, 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 he helped it be the best it could be. And, but after that, it was always my goal. Well, can I do something better without his help that, than I did with it? And, um, and then that's what I tried to do. Uh, more recently, he, he did actually offer to help again. He, in the last year or so, he had been editing, uh, for several people at Sports Illustrated, just kind of being a story consultant. And so he helped, uh, he did some good editing work with uh, a story I did on Tim Tebow. Mm. What's uh, what was his role at, at Sports Illustrated? I know that you know, especially as reporters, you all live in your own areas. It's not like there is, uh, you know, everybody spends a. It's not like everybody spends a whole lot of time in a central office or newsroom because you're spread out all over the country. What was his role, both tangibly and intangi- and intangibly? In, uh, in that Sports Illustrated newsroom? Well, we certainly always looked to him. Uh, you know, we wanted to s- see what he would do next because the schedule was he would do four stories a year. That had been his contract for as long as I can remember. So it was always like, well, uh, which is going to be the lucky issue that has a Gary Smith story in it, you know, and, and, and what's he up to this time? Um, beyond that, though, I mean, uh, yeah, the writers are spread all around the country. They're, it's not like uh, a newspaper or, or, or TV newsroom. People are just all sort of uh, out on their own. And so uh, it's it's up to you to make your own little community. So I would just call him from time to time, ask how he was doing. We would chat about this or that. Um, actually, m- more often, rather than asking about writing, I often call him just uh, asking for advice about life because he was uh, – he was just sort of this uh, voice of wisdom I found. Um, mm. So uh, that's how it worked for me. Uh, I, I'm really not sure how it did for anyone else, other than I know that pretty much whoever has ever written to him, even from high school students on up, probably, uh, he does write back. That's uh, really interesting to hear. And, you know, I, I would imagine that, you've got someone who's kind of a legend in a sense. I know I look at him and as someone who does quite a bit of long form storytelling on the TV side, I look at, at the kind of leeway and latitude that he gets. And, and I'm just amazed, you know, like you said that four four stories a year 
And I'm assuming that he kind of had the say in terms of what stories he did and, and what he chose to sink his teeth into. Yeah. And, and he had earned that he had been, uh, you know, by the time I came on, he'd been doing really great work like that for about 25 years. So at that point, I think, uh, it was really up to him what he wrote about. And, and they, there's a, a struggle from time to time at SI, you know, there, there's a kind of a premium on writing about the biggest stars, um, the most famous athletes. And he didn't always want to do that just as I don't always want to do that. But when he did write about the most famous athletes, sometimes those were his best stories. Uh, when he wrote about, uh, Mike Tyson, uh, Muhammad Ali, Tiger Woods, um, uh, it was great. But I think my guess is one reason he may have gotten away from that um, is that it's just harder and harder to get close um, to those celebrity athletes. Now there's so much more uh, just in the way, so many more barriers uh, to see what their lives are really like. They they don't really want to let people in the way they did um, 30, 20, even 10 years ago. Mm. And, um, there's so much more sports media out there. Um, the cable networks, all the websites that I think they sort of feel like they're under siege and they just have to protect themselves. Well, and that was one thing I wanted to ask you too. And and I wrote this in my tribute that in a lot of ways, as much as I loved his work to me, he often seemed like an anachronism, uh, in, this far more frenetic landscape that we observe now in in the media and in sports media in particular. I mean, he would do just these incredible, rich, complex, layered stories, but they'd be on obscure subjects, and they certainly didn't seem to be made for the Twitter generation. And I'm curious as to how he saw himself, especially in in these final years of his career, did he feel like the the industry was starting to move away from him, or did he feel like what he was doing was still very much relevant and obviously very much necessary? Yeah, he told me he he felt great about every story he did right to the end, and um, and there were some very good ones. Uh, I think it was two two that come to mind from the last year or two. Uh, one was about um, a high school football coach and what he did during a school shooting in Ohio and how he helped to save kids' lives there and how the, the training of, uh, of his had really helped him do what he did. And it was a, an excellent story. And um, another one was about um, a football player, I believe it was in Virginia, who went on a hunger strike because of a, a social issue he believed in. Mm. And um, those were wonderful stories and and so um he i think he found a way even even toward the end even if they weren't about the most famous people um to do that signature work did he feel like the work he was doing was getting the same traction and and getting the same response that it had in the past i don't know and i also don't know how much that mattered to him i mean uh he is a guy never went on twitter you know um I don't think he was around looking on the internet for, you know, mentions or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> very different kind of guy. Just uh, did the work and and uh, moved on. 
What, uh, you know, I know I, I, I talked a lot last week about what I admired about, most about Gary Smith, and uh, there's a laundry list. I, I think the 50 interview rule, the legendary rule, was, was one thing. I think his desire to steer clear of shortcuts, to, uh, you know, to tell every story differently, and, and when you brought up the anecdote that he would call people back again and again, that really came as no surprise to me because... You, you can just tell his expertise in every story he writes, and you know it's 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 akin to someone becoming you know a, a master in astrophysics before writing a piece on astrophysics, uh, before writing a piece on astrophysics. I mean, he was just so good at sponging up everything, and and it showed in his work. What what are the things that you admired about him that maybe most people? especially most readers, didn't get to really see and really understand? Yeah, uh, very good question. I think one would be uh, that he was almost totally unwilling to judge people, meaning anytime he was going to write about something that someone did, uh, particularly a bad thing, something that they would get, chastised for by others uh his number one concern was to understand Mm. was to render that event from their point of view and show what it was like to be them and what it was like to go through the aftermath of what they had done and um he he was just sort of unyielding in that he always wanted to understand rather than judge and uh, so a classic example of that would be a story damned yankee about a yankees player who had accidentally killed a relative as a child in this strange accident um, and was haunted by this for the rest of his life and so uh, the story gary wrote was all about what it was like to live with that burden of guilt uh, or, or the same thing with uh, George O'Leary, the coach, the football coach who had lied on his resume. Yes. Um, Gary did a story on him, and it wasn't about, well, hey, look at this guy and what a terrible thing he did. It was about, uh, you know, here's what it's like to believe that you have to do a thing like this, that you're not good enough. Yeah. You know, and and uh, so it's sort of a radical approach. I mean, it's it's what all of us, I think, should be trying to do, but it's so easy to forget that. And I forget it all the time. You know, I get this righteous anger boiling up about this <laughs> or that thing. And and I think that's pretty normal. But um, but then if I step back and say, well, well, how would Gary look at this? Well, he would try to figure out why the bad guy did what he did. I think the... Uh... The one that stands out for me that I wrote about last week and, and the, the first Gary Smith story I ever read was the uh, Richie Parker story right. uh, from probably, yeah, about 20 years ago now uh, where, you know, you've got this New York schoolyard basketball legend who gets convicted for sexually molesting a classmate. And, you know, and I, and I wrote this in the piece last week. Reading Gary Smith's story didn't make me sympathize or side with Richie Parker in any way for what he did, but 
it did enable me to understand all the complexity of his story, both past, present, and future, you know, and, and that's a very difficult thing to do, and, you know, Gary Smith was one of those people that had the time and the real estate, the space, to actually flesh those things out, and he was, I think, just one of the best at doing it. Right, and the skill, because um, you could go down that road if you didn't know what you were doing and do some terrible work, you know, yes. that that, uh, that sort of didn't bring everything together and just sounded like some lame uh, defense of, of the indefensible. But somehow um, he got around those traps and always uh, uh, you know, brought the whole picture together. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Thomas Lake, writer for Sports Illustrated. We've been talking about Gary Smith, who just retired. Uh, just, again, uh, an unbelievable sports writer, and I would say the finest of his generation. But, Thomas, I wanted to talk about your own career a little bit. You're blossoming yourself as a long-form sports writer. And I, I wanted to get into, you know, why you do what you do and what you love about what you do. Yeah, um, well, um I've certainly loved great stories ever since I was a kid. I grew up in a homeschooled family, and uh, it, it wasn't perfect, but one thing we did a lot was uh, read, read things that we were interested in. And uh, we would go to the library and check out a few dozen books at a time, and uh, I was really into um guns and tanks and airplanes and world <laughs> war two and all that. And I would sit there and I, I, I just think it's a privilege to, uh, to be able to find these true stories that, uh, that make us feel some strong emotion. And, uh, and if I feel that way in, in gathering the facts and reporting them, the challenge is, well, can I make the reader feel that same way? And, uh, and that's a, a, a huge challenge, but, uh, uh, but I love taking it on. You know, the, the hard part though is sitting there uh, with the blank white screen, figuring out uh, the first sentence to write. Um, that's uh, that's never going to get easy, I think. Yeah, and you and I have known each other for a few years. I reached out to you after uh, reading Two on Five, and uh, reading it in the Best American Sports Writing series, and just admiring the skill that you brought to it. And I, I remember at the time, before I, uh, before I spoke with you and met you, uh, thinking that you were a lot older than you actually are. And because of the, again, just the nuance and the depth that you brought to it, how do you feel, you know, by any standards, you've developed so quickly in a very complex genre of journalism. How do you feel you've been able to do that as quickly as you have? Uh, well, um, it's funny. Uh, I was at a, a seminar uh, down at the Pointer Institute uh, a few years ago, and uh, I think we were talking about narrative journalism or something. And uh, there was a bathroom break, and this other, this probably fifty-year-old guy, uh, walked into the bathroom at the same time as I did. And, uh, he looked over at me and he was like, Thomas, Lake, uh, you look like a little boy and you write like an old man. <laughs> and I didn't really know what to make of that. Uh, but it is a, 
Somewhere in there, there's a compliment, I think. I I guess, I guess, you know, I think all bets are off when you're in the men's room. But uh, (laughs) yeah, you know, I've always kind of looked like a kid. But um, what? uh, Why does it? Why does it sound that way? Maybe, maybe from reading all these books that came out a long time ago. I don't know. Uh, When I was a kid, it was uh, my mom reading us the. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, A Little House on the Prairie books that, uh, that are really brilliant. They, they do stand the test of time. Or um, uh, more recently, it was John Steinbeck and uh, Cormac McCarthy. Uh, so uh, I guess everybody has a certain kind of a voice that they, uh, they aspire to have. And uh, it's funny, though, because I feel like that was more true <clears throat> four or five or six years ago and that uh, I've kind of lightened up on that now and maybe maybe even sound a little younger as I'm getting older. I don't know why, but, uh, but uh, people do change over time. You're the journalist case of Benjamin Button. Exactly, yes. yes. Um, you started in newspapers, went to magazines and I know you wrote at Atlanta magazine quite a bit before going to sports illustrated, uh, full time. Where do you feel like you made your greatest strides in terms of growth? Oh, good question. I mean, it, it, it certainly had to be a little bit every place. Um, it, at the press Sentinel in Jessup, Georgia, twice weekly, uh, I learned how to get all the facts and put them together quickly uh, you know, how to, how, a, how a small town works, how to get police reports and all that kind of thing. Uh, at the Salem news in, in Massachusetts, it was, um, a little more of the same and, and trying to, uh, really dig in and do some investigative work. Uh, Florida times union in Jacksonville, uh, I worked with an editor named John Tempe there. That's really when I first started writing those longer feature stories, um, uh, did, I did one about uh, an overnight shift at a uh, veterinary emergency room where all these sick pets were coming in overnight, and that that was a good lesson. I, I did a few things right on that story and a few things wrong, but but hopefully learned from them. Uh, at the St. Petersburg Times, it was uh, I had an editor named Mike Moscardini who was just terrifying. He kind of beat us up every day, but in a way that I think always made me much better at asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. So I was there for two and a half years. Uh, certainly learning how to write a magazine story, um, a, a large part of that happened at Atlanta Magazine for um, two years. Uh, the editors, uh, Rebecca Burns and Steve Fennessy, showed me a little of what that was like and, and what I was doing wrong. I think I still thought that... Uh, you know that every sentence had to kind of give off these fireworks hmm. um, when I came there, and I don't, I don't want to lose that, you know. But I also believe that if you could just take a step back and and say, okay, this is a good story, tell it well, and and um, you know. You can step off the roller coaster once in a while. Uh, then you're probably going to get a better overall story. Give me uh, 
I want to dig into that just a little bit more because that's a fascinating uh, subject, I think, the idea of, of, you know, filling every sentence. And I know, again, coming from a TV background and working in TV where, where we only get so many sentences, you really are encouraged. I mean, you know, every word, every sentence has to count uh, in a much greater way because you have so fewer of them. Uh, in long-form magazine writing, I would imagine that you do have to spend a little more time weaving in narrative, weaving in exposition, and not in a boring way, but also you, you may not need a turn of phrase every time or, or a, you know, a certain a je ne sais quoi to every sentence. Uh, right. Well, and that's a, a debate that's uh, going on quite a lot in magazine writing now because uh, what we're seeing the past five or ten years, uh, when you look at uh, what's a finalist or a winner of the National Magazine Awards, um, more often lately, um, uh, it is, it's done in a sort of a plainer style, the kind you might see um, in the New Yorker, uh, which actually just won uh, this year in, in feature writing again, uh, a more straightforward, direct, here are the facts uh, kind of a style. And that style works very well. I mean, it's, it conveys the story and, and, uh, and, and often in a very compelling way. But uh, there's certainly, there's a camp of people that says, wait a second, uh, magazine writing can be sort of, I don't know, what's, what's the right word, uh, more, more stylish or, or more fun than that, or more inventive maybe. And so uh, certainly the reason I got into magazine writing is to, is to try to uh, do some tricks, you know, and, and, and write a kind of sentence that had never been written before. And, uh, it does feel like there's a gradual shift in, in at least what's getting recognized as great work away from, uh, inventive or imaginative, imaginative language and more towards, well, here's great reporting and here's a very competent way. Of, of telling that story, a very competent and reliable way of telling it. But I do imagine that you've got a, kind of a built-in advantage in that you write for a sports publication. So you have a little more license to be fun and be creative with it because even if your individual stories may not be about fun topics, they are in that fun world. Um, sure. Uh, or maybe not. <laughs> so there's, I mean... Uh, well, you look at what I actually end up writing about. Uh, almost every story draws uh, on at least one autopsy report. Uh, so there is that. <laughs> that <laughs> would um, be as fun, no. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, yes, we get the, the the time and space at Sports Illustrated to really uh, go long and, and, and tell it in a way that we want to, and um, and so. And that's probably less true at, say, some some news magazines or something like that. Uh, yeah, the, but but your point is correct in that historically there's been a lot there's been a little more poetic license at a place like Sports Illustrated. Um, who knows though? Everything is changing very rapidly. Yeah. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Thomas Lake, writer for Sports Illustrated. Thomas, in, the, in this final section, I always like to make uh, some time to offer some advice for younger journalists coming in and 
obviously, uh, as someone who's experienced quite a bit of success quite quickly in the industry, uh, I'd love to hear your take on, on the things that you feel like really enabled you to rise as fast as you have and, and receive the space that you now have to do the kinds of stories that you like to do. Yeah, um, I think one very important thing is that even as uh, I was trying a lot of experiments in the writing department and, and trying to be poetic here and there, that was always underpinned by, or at least as, as I learned more and more skill, uh, underpinned by uh, solid reporting. In other words, in nonfiction, I think you have to earn the right to uh, to to sort of do your jazz, and you earn it by uh, knowing every fact, by getting out there, by piecing the story together, one interview, one document at a time. And I think uh, editors probably realize that, that, uh, you know, here's a kid who's trying a lot of things and failing sometimes and, you know, doing some crazy stuff, but, um, but he's getting the facts and, uh, and really, really digging in and, and earning the authority to, to write that way. And so, um, I think that's so important if, if, if you're in college now and just coming out, I mean, um, you've got to learn, you've got to have that foundation of being a very solid reporter uh, that will let you then uh, uh, jump off that and, and try some of your uh, artistic writing touches. I, I, I know personally, I've always felt a certain um, a certain necessity when I'm doing the harder stories that before I start, you know, showing writing flourishes and, and using turns of phrase or anything like that, I need to make it perfectly clear that I take the story seriously and show my expertise on it. And that goes for long form and lighter stories too. But I think especially when you're during dealing with more serious, more weighty matters, it really is incumbent upon the writer or the journalist of any kind to understand what they're talking about in full before they try getting fancy or, you know, doing anything else with it. Obviously, you want to make every story different, every story unique, but step one and maybe steps one through five always have to be the nuts and bolts reporting and making sure that you know what you're talking about before you convey it to others. Yeah, and if, if there's any lesson from the work of Gary Smith, that's it. You know, he had the goods every time when he sat down at that keyboard. When you uh, speak at the Pointer Conferences and, and when you get the kinds of letters from young journalists that you sent to Gary Smith way back when, uh, what's the biggest question that you get asked and what's your answer? Oh, uh, well, people certainly, uh, I think they want to know, like, well, how do I do long form, right, if it's, uh, if it's a young journalist. And so... My answer is always, well, great stories don't have to be long. Uh, how I started out in, in newspapers in seven years, a lot of those stories were done on a daily deadline, five or 600 words. 
that they had a beginning, a middle, and an end, maybe a little bit of dialogue here and there, some description. I think it's very possible to work up to writing a long story. Uh, necessary, in fact. Uh, it's probably not even healthy to try to write 7,000 words <laughs> when you don't have uh, the practice of, of writing something really exciting and compelling at, at a shorter length. Yeah. Thomas, uh, that's all the questions that I have, but I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I live in Atlanta here, and um, I, I'm going to believe that before I die, an Atlanta team is going to win a championship. you think I'm uh, right? Well, that's uh, that's a lovely dream. I, uh, I and you know that I, I stand with you as an Atlanta Hawks supporter through and through, um, and and I actually have more hope for them than I think I, I have since I moved here. So I'm I'm with you, Thomas. I appreciate where you're coming from. You know that door was wide open. Look at the way the Wizards are rolling over. The Hawks could be on their way to the Eastern Conference Finals right now. Well, they could have just closed the deal in Game 6. I think that door would have been slammed shut by the Heat one round later, but I but I, I, I hear where you're coming from. Thomas well, Lake. <laughs> Thomas Lake, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me All right. on the Thanks podcast. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate the telling it. The, uh, the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.